absolutely should think a lot about how Russia and China are uh, actively uh, spreading misinformation and disinformation in Canada to damage our interests, to sow uh, mistrust in government and so on. But it's not. Welcome to the Blue Skies Political Podcast. I'm Aaron O'Toole, the Member of Parliament for Durham. And today we're talking about a very important issue for our country, national security and the need to have a strategy. This is an area of public safety, intelligence, defense, security has been an area of great interest to me as a Canadian Armed Forces veteran, as a member of parliament, as a lawyer. How do we get the balance right to make sure that most important issue for government, keeping our citizens and our communities safe is a priority in an ever-changing world? We have two experts to talk about a strategy today, but I thought this is a challenging area, so I thought I'd start with a quote that is is now infamous, uh, even though it was mocked when it was first uttered. As we know, there are known knowns. There are a few things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. There are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. Now, that's a very famous quote from Donald Rumsfeld in 2002, talking about weapons of mass destruction, and it was not received very well, but it does highlight effectively, actually, the quandary in analysis around national security. Some things are evident in terms of a threat to public safety, to our democracy, but some things are not. And this area is so challenging, we have to actually try and anticipate what we know we don't know. What is the black swan that is uh, floating around the corner of the river? That's what some of our guests here today have been charged with for institutions, for government, for the prime minister. We're very fortunate to be joined by two experts who just released a report called A National Security Strategy for the 2020s, the first such expert report in a generation. Vincent Rigby recently retired from the public service after 30 years. His final position was as National Security and Intelligence Advisor to the Prime Minister of Canada. He's also worked with the Privy Council, Global Affairs, Public Safety, DND, CEDA, so many of the agencies charged with analyzing public safety and intelligence. He's currently a senior fellow with the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. And he is the co-chair of this report alongside Thomas Junot, who's an associate professor at the University of Ottawa's Graduate School of Public and International Affairs, well known for a research focus on the Middle East, particularly Iran and Yemen, when I first encountered the professor a few years ago, and the interplay on national security, intelligence, and defense and foreign policy making. He's the non-government co-chair for the National Security Transparency Advisory Group, an independent body that advises the Deputy Minister on Public Safety on how to enhance transparency on national security in Canada. And from 2003 to 2014, he worked with Canada's Department of National Defense. And Thomas, the National Security Transparency Advisory Group, Probably the best element of transparency we've had in many years is the report you both chaired talking about the threat environment. So I'll start off with this. Your subtitle to the report is How Can Canada Adapt to a Deteriorating Security Environment? I think 
anyone that watches the news sees that. Would you both give us your take on that deteriorating security environment and what are the environment threat environment that Canadians should be aware of? Maybe start with you, Tamar. Uh, I, well, first of all, thank you very much for having us uh, on the podcast. Uh, the second point I'd also like to make uh, just before starting is to say that that quote by Rumsfeld is actually very useful and accurate. Rumsfeld can be criticized for a whole host of other things, not our discussion today, but that was a very valid quote. Um, so on your on your question, uh, as we uh, explained in the report, there's a whole section that we begin with uh, to say that, you know, over the decades, uh, Canada has really benefited from the luxury of a, a good geographic position. We're sheltered here in North America. We have only one neighbor. Historically, we've benefited tremendously from our relationship with the United States uh, on the security front, on the economic front. It's a relationship, as we all know, that's not always easy, but by and large, we've really benefited from it. Uh, we've got oceans on the other sides. When there are wars uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria or elsewhere, we may be affected a bit by these wars, but by, but by no means are we seriously affected uh, like our, uh, some of our allies in Europe are, some of the direct neighbors of, of some of these countries at war. Um, and over over the decades, that that luxury of of being really secure at the top of North America has led us to be somewhat complacent, uh, to to ignore, to neglect national security, and in a way, that's a good thing. We've been able to ignore national security because we could. Um, uh, but as we are saying in the report, and I'll let Vincent go into a bit more detail after this this kind of chapeau, but uh, things are changing. Uh, our our security situation is deteriorating, and gradually, we will not be able to be complacent. Uh, and, and that's what we're trying to do with this report. Great start off. Uh, Vincent? I have to say that I, I remember the Rumsfeld quote very well, uh, too. I was actually in the Department of National Defense in 2002, working on the Iraq file when that, when that quote came out. And I remember scratching my head. All of us were scratching our head and going, what, what is he getting at? But looking back on it 20 years ago, 20 years, it, uh, it makes a lot of sense. And I think I have a deeper appreciation than ever of what he was, what he was getting at. Um, I think the bottom line is, as Tomat says, the threat environment is changing and it's changing in a very transformative, significant way. And so we're living in a world that we would suggest is, is very dangerous and very unpredictable. And we were seeing a lot of these trends even before the Russian invasion of Ukraine recently, which I think has got a lot of people's attention, and, and we're hoping it, it, it does um, constitute a bit of a wake-up call for Canadians that, boy, this, this is a world that uh, is, is you know, unpredictable, unstable, and, and can pose a national security threat to Canada. But whether it's this return of great power rivalry, as I say, we're seeing that right now in the context of the Russian invasion, but, uh, you know, we are seeing this back in 2014, all the way back to 2008, when Russia invaded Georgia, we've seen Russian aggression ramping, ramping up. So now it's manifested itself in an outright invasion. Um, you take a look at what China is doing right now. <clears throat> Until the Russian invasion of Ukraine, China was in every single discussion. It's, it's, it's been relegated to, the, to the, the back seats for now. But over the longer term, we actually think China is probably um, a greater threat to the West and to, and to Canada. And we've seen this through the debates in Canada recently in terms of foreign interference, in terms of um, espionage, in terms of disinformation, and just their much, much more aggressive foreign policy. 
And then as an offshoot of this, I think this, this sort of ideological rift you see in the world right now between democracy and uh, autocracy and, and how that's, that's playing out in democracy is clearly a little bit on the retreat. And, and I know you'll want to talk a little bit about the comments we make about the United States, but I think globally, democracy is on its back foot right now. And so this, this is, should be a concern for, 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 for Canadians. Um, we see threats at home. In, in the form of ideological motivated violent extremism, the, the events that happened back in January with respect to the Freedom Convoy, what happened in Coots, what happened in, in Windsor. So domestic extremism is a, is a problem. I don't think we can take our eye completely off the ball when it comes to religiously motivated violent extreme, extremism. Um, ISIS, Al-Qaeda have not disappeared. And while they may not have quite the capabilities they once had in the past, they still have the intent to attack Western targets, so we can't forget them. We have um, technology, disruptive technology, which facilitates a lot of these threats. So whether, whether it's the, the, the proliferation of new forms of weapons like hypersonic missiles or cyber attacks, these I think are, are ramping up the threat, whether in and of themselves or as I say, facilitating other threats. And then you have this new broader definition of national security, which includes, um, trends like climate change and the pandemic. And these are, in our view, these can be national security threats when they cross a certain threshold. And we can maybe talk about that in a little bit more detail. Um, but you put, you put all of this together and it's, it's quite a hodgepodge of, um, of instability, of, of threats and of, of concerns for, for, for Canadians. And so, you know, the, the post-Cold War period is, is long, long gone. And even the... The post 9-11 period is gone. I've been saying that we've got a post-post 9-11 period, and it's every bit as unstable and transformative as those as those previous periods. So uh, I think it's a bit of a clarion call in the report for Canadians to wake up and, as Thomas said, take our national security pretty a little bit more, more seriously because it, it is a dangerous world out there and Canadians may not realize it. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think what, what is interesting is the great power rivalry, people think of the Cold, Cold War with that setup, but it exists now both with Russia and China. They have ambitions in their near abroad, so their sort of domain around them. Um, some people were saying the, the Russian continued invasion, because there was Crimea, there were cyber attacks, there was this constant state of uh, you know, unofficial war um, being waged against Ukraine by Russia. But their full invasion and the war that we watched, we saw the bombing of a mall just recently, just horrific attacks on civilians. It has not gone as well. So early talk was that this was going to accelerate uh, China's ambitions with respect to Taiwan. Now people are saying there might be some pause on that. But the very fact that these these major great power players are acting in their near abroad to sort of dominate and control. The West is watching that, but these great powers are also trying to keep us a little bit on our hind feet through disinformation, through uh, cyber and, and, and other threats. Can you talk about that? Because that's something that certainly didn't exist in the, in the sort of cold war, you know, uh, that we all think of with the Berlin Wall and the and the the Russian bears probing our airspace, and there was this almost quiet uh, detente in in that Cold War. But now there's actions being uh, undertaken by the great powers uh, in in our domains and in our democracies. Can you talk a bit about that in in terms of of risks to Canada? 
Well, disinformation as a as a tool to pressure adversaries is is as old as war and conflict has has been. There, it existed during the Cold War. It existed during World Wars One and Two, and exi- it existed before. I think what we're seeing now is is different at two levels, at least. Uh, one is the technology that that adversaries can use to spread disinformation, which has evolved a lot uh, through the internet, through social media, and so on, which obviously did not exist before. And two, I think the other thing that is changing, that has changed a lot in in, in the most recent years, is the intensity of the use of those tools, especially by Russia and China. That being said, it is worth saying, and that's a point we're making in the report, we absolutely should think a lot about how Russia and China are uh, actively uh, spreading misinformation and disinformation in Canada to damage our interests, to sow uh, mistrust in government and so on. But it's not only these two. Um, Smaller hostile powers are also doing that. Here we can obviously think about Iran, uh, to a lesser extent North Korea, because the Canadian nexus is is much more limited in in that case. But in Iran's case, it, it definitely is happening here. But where the discussion gets really complicated uh, is when you consider that states that we typically think of as allies or partners are also involved in, uh, in some cases, disinformation. In other cases, beyond the realm of disinformation, pressuring their own diaspora communities inside Canada. Um, Think about Saudi Arabia and Turkey and India. Uh, Turkey is an ally in the technical sense of the word. It's a member of NATO. Saudi Arabia and India are... I'm not sure what word to use. Partners, in the case of Saudi Arabia, it's a bit complicated since the dispute in 2018. India is is a partner. These countries, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, India, and I could name others, are involved in the spread of this information inside Canada, are pressuring members of their diaspora uh, communities inside Canada, if, for example, they are involved in human rights activism back in the home country. Um, That's a problem. Uh, it's a problem for these diaspora communities here in Canada, and it's a problem for our democratic fabric, generally speaking. And one point that we're trying to make in this report is that that type of uh, disinformation, that type of hostile activity is something that we have not been taking seriously enough. And we need to build better tools uh, to, to counter the, those types of activities. And we need to talk about them gen- in general much more. That means the government, that means opposition parties, it means civil society and the media and so so on. I think what's interesting right now in terms of the threat environment is that you do see this, this blend, this mix of what we'd call traditional threats and, and newer threats, gray zone threats, hybrid threats, however you want to define them. So, I mean, Mr. Atul, you put the attention with Russia and China on things such as foreign interference and cyber, and absolutely those, those are threats. But in the case of the, of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, this is where I, I, I say that for me, Ukraine is a national security threat to Canada and what's happening there right now, because when the Russians start talk about escalation and using nuclear weapons, that should have us opening our eyes wide. And yes, maybe it's only tactical nukes, but we don't know that. And that's that's one of Putin's tactics, right? Keeps you Keeps you wondering what he's going to be up to next. And then you look at what the Russians are doing in places like the Arctic, and uh, what they might do after after Ukraine, a more traditional threat in a in a way in terms of military buildup, military capabilities be expanded in the Arctic, and that is a direct threat to Canada. That's much much more direct. And even okay. even when you hear about NATO now saying that they're going to expand their rapid response force up to three hundred thousand people and and start permanently deploying troops overseas and building up 
permanently stationed troops, that means Canadians potentially are going to be back on European soil um, quasi permanently, which you would know very well having served in the military. We haven't seen that since the early 1990s. And no. so that, that means we could potentially be on the front lines here. So it's really interesting that you have that, plus all these gray zone tactics. So absolutely, cyber, disinformation, foreign interference, um, all of them are, are a threat to the Canadian straight, but also a threat to Canadian individuals like we've never seen before. And we make this point in the report, and it's one of the reasons why I think we're hoping the report will resonate with Canadians. It's, it's not old-fashioned national security just aimed at the state, trying to steal state secrets or, or, or trying to knock off a government. It's, it's getting you know, to Canadians through cyber attacks, through disinformation, through foreign interference, normal Canadians, how they vote, how they think, how they react, um, reaching out to them. And, and it, it's, it's become quite personal in a way, these, these threats. So they're very real. They're very pervasive. And everybody, quite frankly, should, should be aware of them. We often talk about parliamentarians should, should, be, should be brief. That's one of our recommendations. But we also say that the, that the government should be very, very open in terms of educating Canadians about the, 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 these, these sort of hybrid gray zone threats and how they are individually impacted. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to get into that later in the, in the podcast. Let me just build briefly on what you said, Vincent, about the full invasion of Ukraine being a direct threat to Canada. Yeah, I agree. You talk about in the great power uh, rivalry, at the particular importance of the Arctic. That's something I've been talking about for many years. But I'll, uh, the disinformation, I have an example this morning, I put on uh, LinkedIn, a note about uh, Rick Hillier's recent comments about we need to do more and he's taken a position with the world ukrainian congress i had a canadian veteran who i know is a wonderful guy he's a friend um post back to me you know oh there's uh, this isn't the full story you know there's neo-nazi brigades uh, operating uh for ukraine and we know this has been a long propaganda misinformation campaign of Russia that even touched on uh, Minister Freeland years ago, uh, James Bazan in, in our caucus, these wild allegations. I've tried to address this through my own podcast. You know, President Zelensky is Jewish, so we actually have allegations being made about neo-Nazi uh, uh, squads in Ukraine for the only state other than Israel with a head of state who is Jewish, it, it is perverse, but it's pervasive. And I, I see it uh, impacting U.S. Republican politics right now, uh, narratives that are pro-Russia propaganda. And I've seen it online here. Um, is this part of the need for constantly educating and, and telling Canadians about the evolving threat environment so that they can almost be caveat emptor, buyer beware to what you're reading on your social feeds? No, absolutely. And it's caveat emptor, not just in this specific context, but but writ large, whether it's it's uh, Russian disinformation or Chinese disinformation, or as Thomas was saying, there are other countries practicing this as, as well. So it's it's a uh, go into into all of this with 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 open eyes and, a, and an open mind as to what you're hearing. I mean, when Putin launches uh, these disinformation campaigns, and, and Thomas is 100% correct, we used to call it propaganda back in the day. I mean, I think it's aimed at two, two audiences. It's, it's aimed at a domestic audience, and it's, it's aimed very much, his domestic audience, to justify 
the incursion into into Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine. So so labeling the Ukrainian government as a as a bunch of Nazis, and we're going to you know <laughs> it's going to use the word exterminate. And I think I probably should use the word exterminate. In some cases, that's what what the Russians are trying to do, um, and and to take over the country. That that's to bolster his his own his own domestic audience. But without a doubt. He's trying to, to, to sway audiences internationally as well. And I think for most of us, we look at that and go, it's ridiculous. And from the opening days of the war, I think we're all saying Zelensky, Zelensky sorry, is, 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 is Jewish and the evidence isn't there, et cetera, et cetera. But um, you have to sift through this stuff. And if you're, not, if you're not steeped in it, you're not looking at it any, all the time, and you just read something and accept it at face value, it can resonate with you. And... Uh, I think you know the, the advice to Canadians is is always ask questions, <laughs> always ask questions. Um, yeah. Don't One thing I let me jump in here because I, I've often talked about the troubles of social media. When I was uh, a lawyer for Procter and Gamble, when you were advertising, and they were the largest advertiser in the world. The best testimonial or the best endorsement you could get was your doctor recommends this because people trust doctors. So if the doctor recommends I take this medicine, it's great. The next best thing is a referral from a friend. A friend says this is great. A friend says this is true. So with social media, when someone posts one of these propagandist type uh, missives, if it comes from your friend, particularly somebody you worked with or served in uniform with, it is cloaked in trust. And that is abused. And I've seen it on this issue. I jumped in, Tom. You probably want to get a few points in here. Uh, you know, I, I think that that the one of the last words you mentioned is actually absolutely essential. It's the issue of trust. Uh, and in this case, uh, one of the, the greatest uh permissive conditions of disinformation is the lack of trust in governments and democracies. And uh, that is a huge problem. And, and we certainly don't claim that we have an easy solution to that. I don't think that exists. Um, but one point that we tried to make in the report, you mentioned my work with the National Security Transparency Advisory Group uh, in the introduction. That's also been one of the underlying themes there. Uh, the lack of trust in government in Canada, but also in, in democracies in general, is a national security problem. Uh, it's a it's a problem on a whole host of other issues on the economic side, on the social side, and very much in moral or, or, or ethical terms. But on the national security side, it's a big problem because as you and Vincent were discussing just a minute ago, a lot of the national security threats that we face today target Canadians, not just governments, um, economic espionage, cyber theft, uh, the private sector, if you look at the theft of intellectual property and so on. One of the greatest defenses in a democracy against these threats is societal resilience. It's trust in government. It's trust amongst each other. And, and I'm not, I know that when you say that, sometimes you may sound a bit romantic or naive or idealistic, but I mean that in very hard-nosed operational terms. Societal resilience is frontline defense against a lot of today's national security threats. The lack of trust in government is, in that sense, a, a one of the key obstacles to uh, allow us to defend ourselves against these threats. So, what do we do? 
um, well, you know, rebuild trust in government. That's very easy to say and, and very hard to do in practice. But one of the ways, not the only one, not an easy one, but one of the ways to do that, that we discuss in the report, is greater transparency, greater communication with Canadians. And this goes back to some of the points you were mentioning in, in, in asking your question. Governments traditionally, definitely in Canada, but to various extents in other democracies too, have not been transparent historically on matters of national security. There's always been that culture of secrecy of saying, no, no, this is national security. You're going to have to trust us on this. Um, that's counterproductive. We can't do that anymore. So in the case of this information, for example, by not being transparent, governments are opening a void, an information vacuum that hostile actors, state actors, China and Russia, others, non-state actors too, for that matter, are very eager to fill. Um, so one of the things, again, and I really want to emphasize, not easy, not quick, but one of the things we can do, we can best do to fight against disinformation is for governments to be much more proactive in being transparent, in releasing information. And in doing that, it is absolutely essential that they be as truthful as possible. This is not meant to be propaganda. If it turns out that information that governments release in trying to counter this information is also disinformation, whether because of political spin, because it was mistaken, then again, it, because it becomes counterproductive. Let me let me use that as a bridge. You talked about eroding trust in in government, in our institutions, in um, in sort of you know whether it's Canadian Armed Forces and some of the crisis of confidence it's having, the RCMP, um, democratic institutions. There's this erosion, and in your report you talk about and Vincent mentioned uh, ideologically motivated domestic extremism. You talk about democratic backsliding and some of the challenges we've seen in the U.S. The pre-9-11 era, era, after the Cold War, when I was in the Canadian Armed Forces, I remember at RMC when we gathered around the television for the largest domestic terror attack pre-9-11, which was Oklahoma City, a bombing from domestic extremism. Timothy McVeigh was a soldier or a, or a veteran, one of the two. Um, is this something that Canadians need to be aware of? And does this play into these, these sort of polls that we're at, the extremes, particularly in the US, red versus blue, and, and increasingly less collaboration in, in the middle? Is that leading to this ideologically motivated risk where people are taking erosion and trust in government and and a, a point of view on an issue and turning it into a security threat for their community. I, I think it's I think it's definitely a serious threat. And, and you've heard the director of CSIS talk very openly about it. If you read the latest CSIS annual report, it's very prominent in the threat assessment. It's right up there at the at, at the top. And, and indeed, we often say we can't forget ISIS and, and we can't forget Al Qaeda overseas, but I, I think for, for CSIS and other security agencies, the main threat when it comes to terrorism right now is more on the domestic side and it's it's more the ideologically motivated violent extremists. I think what you saw during the convoy was in many respects a bit of a wake-up call. And so it, it was um, in, a, in, a, in a sense um, a tip of an iceberg uh, where you you saw for Canadians perhaps for the first time in, in a way I mean there have been other indicators but this was in a very very significant manner um, you see some of this stuff boiling to the surface and so you know you were you were saying that 
that a lot of these extremists will often use an event and kind of exploit it. And I think that's what happened to a certain extent with the Freedom Convoy, which was ostensibly about vaccines and vaccine mandates. But for some, it was very much about overthrowing the government. And they were quite open in that, in that regard. Whether they had the capability or not to do that is another question altogether. But for some, um, it, was, it was definitely something that they had in the, in the back of their mind. And they were quite open about it in terms of you know, going up and knocking on the governor general's door and saying, you know, we'd like a new government, please. Um, you know, we can laugh at it, but these people were serious. They were oh, yeah, well, they wanted the prime minister replaced. They got the opposition leader replaced, you could say. But um, no, we, and this plays into the misinformation as well. I know all MPs, including myself, got hundreds of emails from people saying, if uh, a certain number of signatures are found, uh, the governor general can uh, can replace the prime minister. Um, it, it's it's an overlay of this uh, ideologically motivated uh, extremism with misinformation on social media. And it, it is the worst case scenario where um, a rift is being then ex exploited um, and, and is really causing a, a security risk for, for officials, for our, our state. Um, what can we do beyond, I guess, does transparency, Thomas, help fight that so people can be aware that they, they are prone to being misdirected? Absolutely. And, and as I said in, in, in answering the previous question, uh, transparency, more transparency in the national security realm in general has got to be one of the tools uh, to, to, better, uh, to, to better deal with these issues. And, and I want to emphasize it's not a magic wand. It's not going to change things overnight. Um, but, you know, traditionally in, in this country, and, and I mean this for the current government, I mean this for the previous government, and for that matter, I mean it for the government before the previous government, we have not been very transparent on matters of national security. And, and in a way, and, and you know, Vincent and I are, are very careful in the report not to be partisan, right? We are, we are, we do not want this to be uh, specifically critical of, of one government or another one. Uh, but if you look at the current debate on the Emergencies Act, which is so central to the debates that that you are referring to right now, that there has been far too much of a of a uh, tendency on the part of the government to say, trust us. We needed to do this. Um, at this point, we are now two, three months after the invocation of the Emergencies Act. I still don't have a firm view on whether it was justified or not, uh, because yeah. I don't know. And on its own, I think that is very problematic, especially in a in a context as you described extremely well in, in, in you know giving these examples of MP, MPs receiving all of these letters and and some of them quite threatening. If I if I understand correctly from having spoken to others too. Um, you know, by by refusing to more clearly explain this is specifically what we knew, this is why we did it, these, these are the reasons, this is what would have happened if we hadn't done it, and so on, uh, the government is just feeding that that mistrust and and I think not helping uh to 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 resolve the situation. I think I think it's a really important point. And and Thomas and I are go to great pains in the report to say, listen. When we talk about transparency and openness, we're not saying open the kimono and, and basically put all classified, unclassified documents on the table, every piece of information, and let Canadians look at it. It doesn't work that way in a parliamentary democracy. We know there's always going to be sensitive material that can't be talked about. When David Vigneault went before the parliamentary committee looking at the Emergencies Act, 
he did talk about violent extremism and he did talk about violent extremist elements within the convoy, but also said, I can't get into details because of course he can. I mean, some of these uh, are, are operational details and, and so on and so forth. But I agree with Thomas in terms of mainline messaging uh, and to inform and educate Canadians so that they can then understand what the threat is and then can push their governments to make the right responses, hopefully. Um, you need that. And, and I think the Emergencies Act is a, is a great example. I'm, I'm scratching my head a little bit. Was it, was it because of the economy? Was it because of violent extremism? Was it because of this? Was it because of that? And it may have been all of those. And having been in government, I know how these things work. I know it can get ugly. I know it's not always crystal clear. Um, but I think at the, at the moment, it's, it's, it's a little bit contradictory and it's, it's, it's difficult to figure out exactly what, what was happening. My, my gut feeling is that it probably was warranted. But, but I'm like Thomas, until you put the evidence before me, um, it's really hard to make a definitive call like, yeah, good for you, government, you did the right, you did the right thing. I can't put my hand on my heart and say that right now. Yeah, no, and I think, uh, in, in fact, without, I try and make this podcast non-political, but you know, you know, it's hard sometimes or partisan. I think the government was also a little burnt over the prime minister's trip to India, where, where your predecessor, Vincent, um, uh, Mr. Jean, got into... Um, trying to give context to what was going on. And this is where you, sometimes when you open up a corner of the kimono, it causes more problems than just saying, okay, we have to be a little bit more transparent here. Um, I think having talked to some officials in Alberta and knowing certainly about the threat environment in Coots and this diagonalon, this, it, it sounds, you know, ridiculous and almost some twisted fantasy about this weird state, but there are former Canadian armed forces members that have been pushing this. I, as a veteran myself, I'm horrified that some people would just lose their, their, their lack of judgment and their, and their fidelity to the country. Um, but when you have people that have specialized training as well, um, engaging in some of this extremism to the, to the point of advocating overthrow of government, um, I know there's potentially uh, some risks there. I don't think anything's been demonstrated for for War Measures Act like powers of the Emergency Act, but I think much more public discussion uh, is needed because, as you said, we're already seeing an erosion of trust in government and, and West, some Western countries having democratic backsliding, as you're saying. So that trust is going down as the government is saying more, trust us. And not sharing that information, I think it's it's a vicious circle. It is, and I, I think your point on the Canadian Armed Forces is a is a really important one and, and and an interesting one because I've been arguing that there are two elements to to the CAF when it comes to national security. I mean, there's the broader one, obviously, in terms of defending the country and having armed troops to go and and do nasty stuff when they when they have to, but also in terms of domestic operations. And you know, there's a lot of debate about the CAF and its its role during. The convoy and should it have been deployed, et cetera. And, and I think the right decision was made at the end of the day not to deploy the CAF, but it was taken off the table very, very early. And you know, I've been saying to some of my CAF colleagues, I certainly hope you're ready for the next time this happens, but maybe it's going to be a little bit more serious. And maybe there will be a much more serious debate about do we need to deploy the CAF? And we, we don't want to see a, a replay of 1970, but you talked about black swans and you talked about worst case scenarios. You never know. So um, that, I think, needs to be looked at. But the other piece is, is what's happening inside the CAF. And 
Um, you know, I was NSIA when I, I think I think his name was Matthews, if I'm not mistaken, uh, member of the base going down to the U.S. And I think he's now serving jail time. Um, and there there are elements within the CAF who are, are quite extremists, retired, retired now and and, uh, uh, you know, going off some of them reservists, some of them, um, uh, you know, getting quite actively engaged south of the border and in, in Canada. And this has been acknowledged by the CAF and they, they have to do some work, but uh, it's, it's concerning. It, it really is concerning. Yeah, I was talking about that just yesterday with respect to uh, the Arbor report and, and how we can inculcate into the leadership structure, um, in my view, using military colleges as a way to actually ensure that respect for our charter, um, the rights of all Canadians, and that respect for diverse uh, men and women in the Canadian Armed Forces, all that has to happen to change some of the culture. And I say that as someone who took a lot from his military service, but we we equip people with specialized training and experiences that if they can be turned uh, and radicalized, just like we use the term radicalization in the religious con- uh, concept, um, they they are uh, they are something that have to be watched. And I think with the convoy going back to our friend Mr. Rumsfeld, that is now a known unknown. Um, we know there's going to be possibly something like this. You know, I'm in Ottawa today. Uh, the radio this morning is just constant worry about Canada Day being ruined by um, some sort of action or or blockade. So let's let's switch into another key part of the transparency and the public education piece, which is taking a more formal role for national security within the government itself. Um, And Vincent, you've talked about cabinet committee and PM engagement uh, on the national security file much more actively. I can say as a a new cabinet minister in the Harper government, um, I was honored every time um, the prime minister asked me to attend PNP for something related to the Canadian Armed Forces or ISIS or something specific to national security, because I was the only veteran in caucus and had experience here. In my view, PNP was kind of priorities and planning uh, uh, committee of cabinet was kind of playing that function. But it, it was ad hoc, I guess. I'd be there and you'd see the director of CSIS, you'd see Dick Fadden, um, your your predecessor, uh, is that how it's been run up until this point? Is it kind of as needed on the agenda for PNP, or should we formalize this much more regularly? I'd love both of your perspectives on this, starting with you, Vincent, because you've been at the table. I think what we argue for in the report is is exactly what you just said. First of all, it's it's been far too ad hoc. It depends on the government, but over the years, there have been some cabinet committees on national security, but they've come and gone. What we argue for is a dedicated, committed body at the cabinet level, chaired by the prime minister himself with the key national security ministers at the table, meeting on a regular basis. So not just as required, when something hits the fan, if I if I can be colloquial, um, which is kind of what the incident response group is about right now. The IRG is called together when something is about to happen or has already happened after the fact, and it's very responsive, as its name implies. We argue that you need a body that's meeting every couple of weeks and that sits down and gets briefed on a regular basis as a body. So the prime minister plus those five or six key 
um, public safety, national security ministers are getting briefed, getting the same intel brief, and not just on stuff that's about to happen, but longer term trends as well. So it can be a strategic body and get ahead of the power curve and really think about these things before, before they happen and then get briefed and then be able to respond and to, and to respond again, not just on an urgent basis and an ad hoc basis, but to develop strategies, to develop longer term thinking so that the government can really get a handle of national security. Because we argue that because national security threats are, are so pervasive and so serious right now, you need a dedicated body. And all of our five eyes allies have this type of body. In the US, it's the National Security Council, which I'm not suggesting we do that in a Canadian context because it's a, it's a legislated uh, body, comes under the um, under, under an act. But uh, in New Zealand, the UK, and Australia, they have cabinet committees chaired by the prime minister that talk about national security issues, and that's and that's it. And so you also get amongst those ministers and the prime minister um, real corporate knowledge about these issues. It's it's not getting briefed out of the blue on 20 minutes notice before something's about to happen on, on something you've never been briefed on before. You're getting regular briefs and you're thinking about this and having regular discussions. So uh, we think it's a gap. Uh, we think it'd be a good first step to, to, to pursue it. It's a cabinet committee, so it would not have to be uh, huge machinery uh, changes or anything like that. Um, but uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. I think there's, there's been a fair bit of public conversation about this, this, this recently. There was another report by CG that had the same recommendation, so we're, we're building on that a little bit. But uh, as someone who's been there and, and sort of at the coalface, I, I honestly think it's a it's a glaring omission that we don't have one of these. And I, I completely agree. The only very small point that I'd add to that is that, you know, when when from a public perceptions perspective, you say we need to create a new committee, eyes tend to roll a bit. And sometimes that's justified, uh, but sometimes it's not. Uh, and in this case, if you do have a sustained regular uh, meeting of a cabinet committee chaired by the prime minister on national security every two weeks, every month or something like that, there is a serious trickle down and spillover effect that automatically uh, comes out of that in the sense that it's not just a bunch of ministers sitting down and having coffee every now and then. The whole bureaucratic apparatus would be geared towards supporting that. Initiatives would have to be brought forward. Expectations would be created. When they come out of these cabinet committee meetings on national security, there might be a scrum and the media would ask questions specifically on national security issues, et cetera, et cetera. So it wouldn't just be another talking shop created. Realistically, it would lead to a large spillover effect that would hopefully create at least some of the effects that that Vincent and I talk about. Yeah, and I think all governments, Vincent said, you know, this has been kind of ad hoc as needed. Uh, all governments tend to wait until, until something's critically needed and then quickly create a, com a committee. Um, we've seen this with this government. Um, the latest thing is transportation and passports and things like this. But if this was more of a permanent committee of cabinet that was not ad hoc, not as needed, but was constantly monitoring the situation. You might think, uh, I'd love your thoughts, if they had been monitoring this, um, would you have needed the sort of overreaction of the Emergencies Act, uh, or would there have been a much more strategic approach of the government as um, as protests and 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 some of these risks and the convoy rolled across the country? Would there have been a... Uh, a much smoother handling of it, maybe. 
That's a, that's a good question. And I mean, it's a, it's a hypothetical or a counterfactual. So it's difficult to say specifically, especially because in terms of the generally poor handling of what happened earlier this year, I think some criticism goes to the federal government, but a lot of criticism also has to go at the municipal level, Ottawa the, and, and Ottawa Police Service and at the provincial level too. So a better reaction at the federal level might not necessarily have led to a better outcome because you have to assume that other reactors would or would not have reacted better, better on, on their side. I think where your question is really interesting is uh, beyond the issue of, of, of better planning ahead for events like what we saw earlier this year in Ottawa and elsewhere in the country, is, is what other lessons can we have learned from that? And, and specifically on that, I think, and so far, I have to say I'm, I see some progress and we'll see as, as things uh, go along, but one of the big weaknesses in terms of the reaction was specifically because three levels of government had to be involved in managing these protests um, is the issue of information sharing and collaboration between levels of government on national security issues, which is not something that we have typically done very well in this country. So one of the big lessons learned, and Vincent and I wrote an op-ed in The Globe a few months ago on, on, on that, is that uh, governments need to share information much better at the municipal, provincial, and federal level on national security issues. That can mean the federal government sponsoring high-level security clearances and other levels of government to help them receive information and then use that information. But it also means the federal government sharing unclassified information, which in many cases you should be able to do uh, much better with other levels of government. And beyond the sharing of information, these three levels of government just sitting down together on a regular basis and sharing information, talking, planning, strategizing on issues like this. Hopefully that's one of the lessons that uh, will have been learned. You segued perfectly because that was the last area I wanted to discuss in our discussion. Uh, Vincent, do you have anything there? Because I'll tell you one of the disappointments and this information sharing, Thomas, was brought up after the 2014 shooting on the Hill, right? Remember how, and I was I was there, that's going to be one of the one of the days I remember uh, Corporal Solorello shot, the gunman ran across to, to Parliament, and there's been some changes, um, uh, guards on the Hill, I think one in five were armed in the past. Now they're all armed. But the handoff between the prime minister and the RCMP and Ottawa police and uh, House of Commons security and Senate community, we couldn't even com communicate in a, in a sort of five kilometer radius of, of the hill. That same sort of confusion happened again with, with the convoy in terms of now should Wellington be part of the parliamentary hill district and a pedestrian thoroughfare? Um, should we actually maybe have a federal provincial council on national security where where we do uh, sometimes classify briefings to officials from other levels of government? Because these are pan-Canadian threats in some cases, not just a, a federal versus a provincial threat. Well, we I think, Tom App, if it's not an explicit recommendation along those lines, it's, it's pretty darn close. And we say that we should establish bodies, uh, federal territorial, provincial, even at the municipal level if necessary, but bodies that, as you say, meet on a regular basis and don't wait for the crisis. And that these bodies, um, even if you don't feel like you have anything to talk about, there's always something to talk about. And there's always intelligence that can be shared in briefings and discuss um, issues that are, that are coming to the fore, tabletop exercises. And I remember as NSIA, um, didn't do enough even when I was in the job, but I was always saying we need to exercise more. We need to exercise more. 
Um, and whether it's something like the convoy or threats to ministers or threat to opposition leaders, I mean, this was coming up on a regular basis. But, but yes, absolutely. Uh, whether you want to call it a, a, a specific council or, or just bodies at the bureaucratic level, uh, I mean, there are regular FedProv meetings that right up to the prime ministerial level, but are, is national security on the agenda on a regular basis? No, it absolutely isn't. So we need to have that dedicated conversation. But I mean, information sharing at the strategic, operational, tactical level, Information sharing with individual Canadians, Thomas and I have talked about even, even um, the private sector, uh, head of research institutions getting briefed, getting, getting, getting security clearances so they can understand the threats to them. But you know, also just one last point I wanted to make in, in terms of some of the big recommendations, the transparency also comes through regular reviews of our, of our national security and the fact that we haven't had a review um, or a national security policy in 17, 18 years. We've had no foreign policy statement in, in 16 or 17 years. And that's a way of sharing information with Canadians. That's a way of sharing threat assessments. And we also advocate that we should have regular public threat assessments every, every one or two years to get this information out there. So the information sharing can happen at so many different levels. It should be happening every day. But at the strategic level, you know, every few years, having a discussion with Canadians and articulating what the threats are and what the government plans to do in response, that I think will get Canadians exercised and get Canadians interested in national security. Yeah, I think the information sharing um, and, and strengthening some of the tools that you talked about to make sure that uh, that we're doing that is is critical. Let me end on this. Do you see the information sharing that we get from our allies, particularly the five eyes, being at risk. Um, there's there's many that are worried that AUKUS is, you know, a reduced five eyes. Um, uh, are we going to get the same level of information and intelligence sharing from our allies? Because I remember back um, the, the old uh, threat environment when we had the, the case of the uh, terror suspect Aaron Driver, who was caught before he delivered his bomb. I believe it was an FBI tip that came in to through some social media and and other sources, um, and that that prevented an attack that could have killed many people. Um, is there a risk that we could lose that special relationship? And and uh, you know I've been saying that because I see AUKUS and and just so many of our allies not consulting us. Um, is that a risk? And will that leave us with a less clear picture about the threat environment? I, I would, I know Thomas will have views on this too, but um, I, I would just say that we rely so much on intelligence from our from our allies and our friends, especially in the Five Eyes context. I mean, we're a net consumer, right? Um, we're very good at intelligence collection, but we, we we take a lot more than than we give, and it's critical. I don't think we should ever assume or presume that the tap is always going to be turned on full. Um, there's always the possibility something could happen and we have to be aware of that and we have to be prepared for it. Um, I can tell you during 5G discussions and in, in, in talking to our American colleagues at the time um, under a previous administration, there were not so veiled <laughs> threats from time to time that if you guys don't get in line, uh, we'll have to see what happens on the Intel side. And, uh, you know, it was never explicit. But it was it, it it made you think a little bit. Would they do it? I, I don't know. I don't know. And thankfully, we 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 finally made the right decision on five G, so we won't have to find out. But uh, it always was a concern. I, I was also very concerned about AUKUS. Uh, very concerned. I I'm, I'm not sure I completely buy the argument that it's just about 
nuclear subs. <laughs> I think it's uh, a little bit broader than that. And if we are seriously going to be a player in Asia Pacific and we're not part of that group um, or the quad for that matter, quad would probably be a little bit more difficult to get in, but to get into AUKUS at, at, at one point, we, we have that as a recommendation that should be explored. And, and yeah, I was a little bit shocked. There's always possibly a backstory. And so I, I'm not privy to all the, the discussions anymore within government. Maybe there are good reasons why we did not go into that, but uh, um, I, I, it wasn't a good sign, I have to say, at least on the surface, not a good sign that, that uh, we were not invited to join AUKUS. I would, I would just add that in the short term, I think we're still doing well. Uh, you know, the Five Eyes is a, a, a godsend for us. We are, as Vincent said, a massive recipient, and that is a tr of tremendous benefit to our national security. In the short term, that's going to continue. I have no doubt about that. In the longer term, yes, we do have to be worried for a lot of reasons, uh, some of which we've talked about today and some of which we, we haven't had time to touch on. Uh, our massive underinvestment in the Asia-Pacific region is a topic of a whole other discussion that I hope yeah. you have at some point with somebody more qualified on your podcast, but that is a major, major problem. AUKUS on its own, right? Um, is it about more than nuclear subs? Of course it is. We're, we're not there for a lot of reasons, not just because we don't want nuclear subs, but because we're not much of a player in the region too. I think there is a counter argument that is not entirely inappropriate, which is one of the beauties of the Five Eyes is its flexibility. And right now there's a lot of discussions inside the Five Eyes that are three eyes, but with the US, the UK and Canada on Ukraine. And Australia is not part of those discussions because it has far less of an interest in Ukraine. And that's not a problem. If anything, that's a strength. And it doesn't mean that our, uh, that Australia is being marginalized or anything like that. Uh, so, you know, always keep in mind that with the Five Eyes, there's that side of it, too. That being said, that should not be used as a, as, a, as a pretext to dismiss the fact that we are under investing, as we've talked about for the last 45 minutes, on issues of national security and over time. And, and it, it, it could very well uh, come back to cost us increasingly. Yeah, and I think most Canadians um, think these alliances and relationships are important, but probably don't realize we are a net consumer. We are uh, benefiting by far more than we're contributing. And I saw what, what you saw, Vincent, The when I would go to Congress, um, and I was an early advocate for Huawei to not be part of the 5G, but even the approval of ONET and high tariff communication, some of those early deals, because there were contracts with the Pentagon, um, both Republicans and Democrats were saying, what are you guys doing up there? And, you know, we are, for, for better or worse, and I think it's better, vast majority of the time, we're in the U.S. sphere of influence. And we, to keep those special relationships, um, we have to make sure that we act in unison on key things, particularly where there are threats to that intelligence and security environment. Um, one friend said to me, the worry he has is that we're going to go to tier two of five eyes. You know, it's a, we were a platinum member before we're going down to silver. And so we're only going to get, uh, uh, you know, some information to consume. And I think it, with the complicated security environment, um, how Canada can adapt to a deteriorating security environment, we need as much intelligence, as much thoughtful analysis as possible to make the best decisions for the well-being of our citizens, our institutions, and our country. So um, thank you both. The National Security Strategy for the 2020s, um, doing a little plug there. Uh, 
an incredible contribution to an important public policy debate. So uh, Professor Junot, uh, Vincent Rigby, thank you very much for being part of the Blue Skies political podcast. Thanks for having us. Really, Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, listen, and thank you for listening to the Blue Skies political podcast. As you know, this is a discussion about issues that Canadians need to think about in an informed and respectful way without the partisan uh, noise sometimes. And for this issue, I think it's critical. And I say that not only as a, a veteran, as someone that worked in the private sector and saw cyber espionage and some of these issues uh, emerging, uh, the, the world is a an uncertain place. There are many unknown unknowns going back to Mr. Rumsfeld. And the more we can uh, talk about national security, intelligence, the, the risk environment to Canadians, the more we can ensure that we're working with our allies, uh, the more we can stay ahead of it for the well-being of our country. And I think Canada has a long tradition of going far from our shores to stand up for our interests as a country and our values. And we have to do that in in more ways than one, whether it's in Ukraine, whether it's in the Asia Pacific. Uh, We are a trading nation. We are a global nation. We are not naval gazers. We want to play an active role in making the world a better place. So today we've talked about an incredible report that I encourage all people to listen to. If you have any ideas for a future Blue Skies political podcast, send me a note. Please share this episode and subscribe through your favorite platform and give me some feedback. This is all about intelligent commentary about Canada's future, which I think is bright, but we have to fight for that future and make sure that all Canadians are part of it. Thank you very much for tuning into the Blue Skies. Enjoy the summer.